When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Noor Naga about co-editing a portfolio of writing from the Arabian Gulf for issue 22 of The Common. We'll also be discussing the essay she wrote to accompany the portfolio titled, Who Writes the Arabian Gulf? Noor Naga is an Alexandrian writer who was born in Philadelphia, raised in Dubai, studied in Toronto, and now lives in Cairo. Her verse novel, Wash's Praise, which won the Pat Lothar Memorial Award and an Arab American Book Award, was published by McClelland and Stewart in 2020. Her debut novel, If an Egyptian Cannot Speak English, won the Grey Wolf Press Africa Prize and is forthcoming in April 2022 from Grey Wolf Press. Noor Naga, thanks for joining us. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me, Emily. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Just tell our listeners where you're living and calling from now. Uh, Sure. Um, I am in Cairo in the neighborhood of Maidi in my apartment in the smallest room in the apartment, which has uh, the best signal. So I'm hoping that the Wi-Fi holds out. (laughs) Sounds perfect. Um, Would you start us off with a reading from your essay, the first paragraph, maybe? Yes, absolutely. Uh, This is from Who Writes the Arabian Gulf? I have dreamt of this Arabian Gulf portfolio ever since I was a teenager, writing about snow and squirrels and picket fences, despite living in Dubai where I had more experience with temperatures of 40 plus degrees, karakchai, compounds. Because English was my first language, the fiction that was available and accessible to me at the time was perpetually happening elsewhere. My high school education focused on the British and American canons, meaning that we had no exposure to global Anglophone literature let alone any work set in the United Arab Emirates. The bookshops sold mainly self-help and cookbooks in the 2000s. The public libraries were few, poorly stocked, and dominated by Arabic literature that was also generally quite dated. Consequently, for most of my teenage years, my imagination was furnished by foreign clutter and peopled by strangers I had no knowledge of firsthand. There was the book world and there was the real world and I didn't even appreciate how separate they were in my mind until I began to write about rivers and forests 
and realized there were none around me. The mimetic dimension of literature had been severed entirely. Thank you for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read this essay yet, would you just briefly describe what the piece is about? Um, sure. This is uh, this introduction was sort of my attempt to give voice to some of the questions that have been piling up in my mind over the years and kind of um, came to a head with this uh, Arabian Gulf portfolio uh, that have to do with sort of who gets to be included, um, which obviously uh, I don't feel I have the right to... Um, to uh, to sort of designate or qualify, but um, but it's a question that is sort of especially pertinent in the Arabian Gulf because of how unique the demographic in the region is. So you're looking at uh, populations that are migrant majority, uh, where the majority of the population are um, you know legally very transient and very uh, what's the word sort of vulnerable. Um, so you've mm-hmm. got sort of in some cases, up to 85% of the population are non-citizens. They don't have legal rights or representation. And this includes people who might have been living in the Gulf for generations already. Um, it's a relatively new phenomenon also because these countries are relatively young. Uh, mm-hmm. So the UAE, for example, just celebrated its 50th birthday uh, <laughs> on December 2nd, you know, so talk about yeah. young. I mean, my, my parents are older than this country. It's crazy. Um, yeah. And so, so, uh, so part of the problem is that, um, you know, because you have such diverse populations, uh, in many of the major cities in the Gulf, English has become the sort of unofficial lingua franca. It's how people from all over the world who live in this place, uh, can communicate. And so um, it makes sense to begin thinking about what an Anglophone canon from this region looks like. But then you run into the question of, well, you know, how how long do you actually have to be here to uh, to represent this place or to want to be represented by this place? So there's all kinds of writers mm-hmm. who might have spent significant portions of their childhood in the Gulf, but they don't uh, they don't speak about it in that way. They don't um, identify with the Gulf. They don't want to identify with it for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, And then there's sort of the opposite problem of people who uh, don't have much uh, experience with the Gulf. They might be sort of people who pass through or uh, live there very, very briefly and then write these kind of (laughs) expose-style novels that can be hugely problematic and sort of play into all kinds of stereotypes. So so it's a a really juicy question to think about, even if there's no um, concrete answer. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering for listeners who might, who might not know, um, can you talk about why, um, why people don't have that opportunity for citizenship or wh- why so many people in the Gulf region don't feel like they can belong to that region just sort of logistically? Um, right. Well, I mean, it just has to do with the naturalization policies that are available. <laughs> so for the most part, um, I mean, there are a few exceptions and things are changing, but for the most part, um, there are no avenues for citizenship. So so you can arrive on a work visa or on a tourist visa, uh, or you can be sponsored by a family member, um, but there's no way to get a sort of permanent residency or a passport from these countries, even if you've been born there and you've never left. Mm. Um, so, so this means that rather than having a sort of classic uh, diaspora in these regions, like you would have, for example, a Japanese Canadian community or a Lebanese Mm -hmm. British community or whatever, um, in the, 
in the Gulf, you just get these expat communities who are just Indians in Saudi or they're just uh, Egyptians in Dubai, but they're never, you can never actually become Saudi or Emirati from living in these places. Um, mm-hmm. So, so obviously this creates a, a feeling of sort of transience and it, it, it means that your relationship to the place is really fraught and, uh, and tenuous. Um, and that gets reflected then in the writing. That's great. Thank you so much for clarifying that. No problem. So it was a couple of years ago that you came to us with the idea for a portfolio of work from the Arabian Gulf countries. And, and mm-hmm. we love the idea, of course. Um, and then you co-edited that portfolio with our editor-in-chief, Jennifer Acker. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came out in this fall's issue. I was wondering if you could talk about just like how the idea came to you, because it, it almost seems like you've been like looking for this portfolio for your whole life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's it's something I noticed when I first began writing as a teenager. That I, I initially uh, was writing all this, all these short stories that were set in these sort of in like story land <laughs> in these places <laughs> that had these characters uh, almost from an Enid Blyton, you know, novel. They were all called like Jack and Jill, and um, <laughs> and the sort of the the landscape was very foreign to me. And it took a long time to realize that. I wasn't writing about the place that I knew most intimately because I'd never read anything that was set in Dubai or even in the Gulf in general. Um, And when I began to look for writing that was set in the region, uh, I ran into all kinds of problems, some of which I I was just sort of mentioning of literature that felt Mm -hmm. like it definitely wasn't speaking to anyone who had lived in the region. So um, Mm -hmm. it would be sort of writing by some British journalist for a clearly British audience, uh, sort of references that would be drawn um, between, let's say, Dubai and um, London, let's say. Uh, I I mean, it was sort of, I felt very much that I was not the target audience. I felt... um, very alienated from the settings that I was finding. And of course, I mean, I'm making a blanket statement. There's also all kinds of things that I found that I did identify with, but, um, but I, I felt uh, very strongly the lack of a platform or a collective in which these works could begin to speak to each other. So I didn't know what, what I wanted. I didn't know if it would be a portfolio or some kind of uh, online magazine or an anthology, but I just wanted some way to kind of put these writers in conversation with each other and see what themes emerge. Um, Yeah. And originally the concept of the portfolio and our initial call for submissions was, was more geared toward what you've described as sort of um, majority migrant or expat experience in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we, we broadened it after hearing from a lot of writers who, who fell outside that definition, but still, it still seemed like they had something significant to contribute to the conversation we were trying to have. Mm-hmm. Um, was that a tough call to make sort of changing the concept that you had come with or, or do like, what do you think it added to the portfolio as a whole? Uh, I think it was a pretty automatic decision for me. I think um, initially the idea was to include only migrant voices as a way of sort of uh, writing this imbalance of power that already exists in the region and also allowing for more sort of thematic cohesion between the different pieces. Um, But as soon as we put out the call out for submissions, we got all of these uh, writers asking essentially, do I count? Am I, -hmm. am I foreign enough? Am I local enough? Um, Have I been there long enough? You know, and, and I, I sort of, I was so horrified by, um, the rhetoric and and the idea of being a gatekeeper <laughs> to 
to this region that uh, is already so um, complicated by legal gatekeeping of various kinds. And um, so on the one hand, there's a resistance from me towards doing that, but also um, it began to look a little bit ridiculous because a lot of the sort of themes that uh, migrants in the region might be writing about are also shared by indigenous people, citizens, locals in other Mm -hmm. ways. Um, So they might be experiencing the sort of flip side, the reverse of, uh, you know, what it means to belong to this country that is slowly being overtaken um, by Mm -hmm. foreigners and and that is dramatically changing and modernizing. And, um, you know, it can be sort of equally alienating uh, for everybody involved, I think. So, um, right. And then the third thing, sorry, this is not a very organized way of answering your question. But the third thing is that, you know, the the same barriers towards publishing that apply to migrants, um, the sort of lack of publishing houses in the region, the lack of platforms that are interested in these kinds of works, um, the same things apply to, you know, whether you're a migrant writer or a citizen writer, uh, you know, you're still experiencing the same problem of where do you publish, even if you have something to say, where do you go? Uh, So it seemed a bit ridiculous in the end to sort of... um, to narrow down what is already such a such a limited opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really excellent point. Mm. I've been to the Gulf before. Um, I, I did not feel I had a very good sense of it, but I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I have I've learned so much more from from reading these these really wide ranging pieces about life there, and like you said, like from these very different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if even as someone who lived there for, for so long, you feel like your idea of the Gulf experience or what it means to be a Gulfy writer has changed just through working with, with these pieces for the portfolio? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I think I expected the sorts of themes that came up. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't too surprised in terms of content. The thing that really moved me and, um, and that maybe was surprising was, uh, I didn't know to what extent I was imagining the scarcity of platforms available for this kind of literature. So, I mean, I'd always experienced it myself with my own writing and not knowing where to go with it when I had a story, say, that was set in the UAE. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but to hear from so many writers that they never dreamed that a story set in Saudi, for example, would find a mainstream audience or that they'd never dreamed that they'd be um, published alongside so many writers who intuitively understand uh, the context that they're coming from, the cultural context, or to be edited by somebody who understands, you know, these different languages or who can speak to a different layouts of the city that they're setting their fiction in or their poetry or whatever. Um, I think that was really moving and I hadn't uh, anticipated that I would be so moved by um, the sort of opportunity for community making and uh, sort of connection uh, that mm-hmm. was possible through this issue. That's really nice. I'm yeah. also thinking about how, uh, uh, like you said, that um, that things that have been written about the Gulf are very often written for like a very obviously Western audience or a British audience or a U.S. audience. And so I, I'm sure for those writers, it was wonderful to know that their work was being edited not necessarily for for any sort of specific aim or audience, but just sort of mm-hmm. you know, globally. Absolutely. Absolutely. We had a, a virtual launch party for the issue this fall. It was great. And all the part, all the participants were writers from the, this Gulf portfolio. 
Um, and, and you led a really fascinating discussion amongst them. And it was really, really fun to watch because there was such a clear hunger to talk about these things. It, it felt like there was mm-hmm. like finally space to share this experience that that isn't often talked about. Mm-hmm. Was there anything in particular you were excited about at the launch party, like a conversation or debate debate that, that stayed with you from that? Um, there's so much about that time that was moving uh, about that launch party. I mean, I, I really wish that we'd had uh, both more time and uh, and more space to sort of bring in all of the writers that had worked on mm-hmm. the issue because um, because as you say, there really was so much sort of excitement and a sense of uh, we've never been able to talk about this and and now we can talk about it um, and and also uh, you know we weren't able to even offer the that conversation as a recording because people were concerned. There were some of the speakers were concerned about mm-hmm. um, whether, you know, having something public, uh, having their opinions about literature in these places being so public might affect their ability to live in these uh, regions, you know, whether there would be yeah. some kind of legal repercussions or censorship or. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was something that I was a little bit surprised by. I hadn't I hadn't anticipated beforehand that this might be an issue, um, but um, but if anything, I I think uh, one of the questions that I wanted to ask everybody and and speak more about is sort of what what can be done for the future of writing in this region. Um, so w- what other initiatives uh, are needed and what can we do to go about creating them? Um, so again, whether that is sort of working in partnership with some kind of publishing house to create, um, I don't know, a, a series that focuses on writing from this region or even just a, a literary magazine that might come out mm-hmm. from one of the universities there that highlights sort of student writing from the region. Yeah. Um, there's so much that I, I was curious about, especially from uh, people like Deepak who are teaching in Abu Dhabi, teaching in the region, working with the young generation of writers coming up there. Uh, so I really wanted to know sort of what people were imagining for the future. Um, yeah, but hopefully there'll be future conversations in which we can get into that. Yeah, absolutely. It was just It was just so obvious from watching that it was like, Finally, we can talk about these things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, I should have asked this earlier when you were talking about it, but I'm curious. I, I often ask this when we publish a portfolio. Um, what would you say are the sort of connective themes or things that you feel like run through the Gulf portfolio? Like what what things do you see coming up in multiple stories? Like like you said that you, you sort of weren't surprised by them. Can you just talk about what those are? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, a very obvious anxiety about home and belonging, um, and and uh, so there's many themes of of alienation, of claustrophobia, and they're they're often um, uh, sort of polar opposites. So this feeling of entrapment, um, like with the Tar el Haider's story, which uh, you know is all about this feeling of being trapped in Riyadh, um, being stuck there, and uh, mm-hmm. having sort of all these fantasies about alternate futures that might be possible in other places, um, Mm. especially kind of thinking about it in terms of uh, romance, what is possible for love or marriage. Um, So I I found this theme of sort of claustrophobia was, was, um, was sprinkled throughout in different ways. Uh, also, mm-hmm. Farah Ali's story in which one of the characters literally locks herself in a room and won't come out. And the whole story mm-hmm. has this girl in a room that you never see and you sort of hear her voice, but um, it gets a bit sort of uh, spooky 
uh, after a while and you almost wonder if she's even in there or who, who is in there, what is in there, um, mm-hmm. and why she's in there. And so, you know, there were all kinds of uh, themes of entrapment, but then also of wandering, of being sort of rootless and placeless. Um, I'm thinking of um, Priyanka's uh, essay, All Man is Mars, mm-hmm. um, her experience of sort of um, not knowing where to go once she's left this home that she's always lived in. Um, and, you know, wandering from city to city and having all these different borders uh, sort of closed in her face in various moments um, that depend on what passport she currently has that's still valid, uh, what her visa situation is. And this is something that comes up with uh, with Muna Karim as well and also with, uh, with Kaya's essay. Um, so I think this, there was a lot of anxiety in the entire issue uh, about mobility, uh, where you can go and where you can't go, and um, how far and when and in what way. And um, so I think this is something that maybe a portfolio about any other region in the world would not be so uh, so full of. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's uh, that's what I expected, and that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose you know your region well. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose I know my own anxieties well. I have the same. Yeah. I have the same relationship to place. So uh, probably this is much too big a question to really tackle on a podcast. But um, I was thinking about uh, what you mentioned earlier, and and your essay really tangles w- with this a little bit about. Um, it's just something we've been thinking and talking about a lot in the last few years, which is who who gets to write certain narratives of of people or places, and who can do that with authenticity or authority. Um, and of course, it's sort of complicated in the Gulf region where people are often sort of passing through. Mm-hmm. Um, would you just talk a little bit about how you've come to see this question, either just in a broad sense or specifically as it relates to the Gulf? Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. I I, I sort of um, began by thinking about all the books that I've read that are set in the region that have caused me to cringe and thinking about mm-hmm. what it is specifically about these works uh, what do they have in common, and and what is it that I'm reacting so strongly against? Um, especially as someone who, I mean, I lived in Dubai for eleven years, and my parents still live there, and I return there twice a year. But, but I'm not. I mean, I I don't know to what extent I even have a claim. I mean, on what basis am I cringing? Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not entirely sure. Um, and uh, and initially, my feeling was well. Well, these people, you know, these people, these writers who are coming in here, and they're representing this country that I feel I know so intimately or that I belong to in some ways um, in this sort of superficial or stereotypical way. Um, I mean, my initial instinct was to say, well, you don't know it well enough to do that. I don't think that you've earned your stripes in this region. You haven't, you haven't tried to understand it. Um, You know, you, 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 you've sort of arrived and you've made certain assumptions and you've gone with them and it's the easy thing to do. It's the lazy thing to do, but if you try to understand these dynamics better, you might have written a more uh, a more honest representation. But um, but I don't know if I if I feel the same way. I mean, through um, through working on that essay and thinking about these questions, I, I I've um, uh, I don't know. I, I've sort of drew, pulled back a little bit from uh, sort of closing the door on anyone. I think. It's it's um, 
I don't know. I think in terms of content, you can sort of tell when a representation is nuanced and when it's complex. Um, but also that doesn't necessarily have to do with how long someone has been in the region. I mean, I, I do believe that it is possible to do excellent research um, and to maybe spend a, a small amount of time in a place, but have thought about it deeply enough um, and have researched it well enough that you are able to represent it in a way that is... Um, uh, nuanced and realistic. Um, so, so it's, it's not so much that I think outsiders can't do it. Um, and in some way, all of us, I mean, all migrants in the region are outsiders. We are forced to be outsiders and to remain <laughs> outsiders. Um, but, um, so I don't know. I don't even know if I can answer that question. I, I sort of feel anyone can write it, but we will, we will all be watching, you know, and we're going to <laughs> yeah. sort of bring our toolkit and we're going to think deeply about how you're doing what you're doing and why you're doing what you're doing, the choices that you're making as a, as a writer. And um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. <laughs> I, I, yeah, like I said, I don't think that it's a question we can fully answer on a podcast, but um, I also think you know, some, I'm thinking of your essay and some of the books that you describe as sort of writing the gulf in these sort of flashy or sort of cliche ways. And I think some of that might not be that those writers aren't, aren't allowed to do it or shouldn't do it, but I mean, whose, whose stories end up being published and and what books end up actually being acceptable to, to sort of Western publishers for, for publication. Mm -hmm. And I think if that, if we had a little broader definition of what was palatable for audiences, maybe there would be more representation and we wouldn't have to say this person can write it, but not this person. Yes, exactly. That's exactly correct. I think, I think with time, this question will no longer be so, um, so weighted. I mean, w mm -hmm. when you've just got more, more, uh, representation, then there's less pressure on the things that do make it through the, the gatekeeping to represent accurately or broadly, or, you know, uh, so it'll be less of an issue, I hope. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I hope so too. <laughs> Um, yeah. So that actually brings us quite nicely to my next question, which um, was about uh, the first novel that you wrote, which is unpublished, um, set in Dubai. Um, I would love to hear what it was like writing about the Gulf experience and also um, what your experience was trying to publish that. Uh, yeah, this was this was my first novel. And it's uh, the one that I spent I spent five years writing and and during that time was really uh, learning over and over again what it means to write a novel, but also what it means to set a novel in a place uh, where I, I'd never actually seen that done. At the time, I'd never read uh, a work of fiction that was set in Dubai. I'd read um, a couple novels that were set in other uh, Gulf countries, um, like Map of Home by Randa Jarrar, which is set in Kuwait, uh, and a few others that were set in Saudi and uh, Qatar, I think. But I'd never read anything that was set in the UAE, and um, and so I was really struggling to... Uh, find language to describe even certain sort of architectural facets that you know mm -hmm. are uh, ubiquitous everywhere. But I just I'd never seen them written, so I didn't know how to describe them. Um, mm -hmm. And I was constantly coming up against feedback from my peers that you know they didn't they they couldn't see the country that I was showing them because I just assumed that they'd be familiar with certain things and they didn't they weren't. And so it was it was a really um, mm -hmm. dramatic uh, sort of crash course into writing without sort of precedence um, uh, for for a place at least for setting um, 
And uh, and when I was done, I couldn't I couldn't get an agent to represent it. I I spent a year sending out queries. I sent over seventy queries to different agents, wow. and uh, nobody was interested. And and I think I don't know that might have had something to do with the fact that I mean maybe my writing was just more immature at the time, and and um, and I. I Maybe it wasn't ready. I, I sort of I hesitate to immediately say, well, right. they couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't connect. They couldn't relate because they couldn't relate to this place that they might not have ever been to. So it might have been um, uh, a problem with the writing itself. But I think there's also a large part of it that has to do with uh, the fact that you know I, I there isn't a single agent I came across who had grown up in any of these places, or if they had, they wouldn't have mentioned it because this is also the problem is that because people don't feel that they can claim these places, mm-hmm. whether you're a writer or an editor or an agent, you don't often mention that in your bio. And so it becomes difficult to find others who uh, who you might have something in common with in that way. So this community of writers that is uh, emerging is, is only really able to emerge because writers are starting to say, I grew up in Abu Dhabi, I'm from Dubai, I'm from Qatar, wherever it is, even if they're not indigenous to those places. And um, the same thing I think is true for editors and agents and sort of the publishing industry at large, which is only beginning to take interest in this region. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm also thinking about how, you know, when you're trying to find an agent, people always say like, oh, find agents who represent books like yours. But if if, if there isn't a lot of precedence for, for a project like yours, you know, how do you even find the right person to send it to? Yeah, it's just. Yeah. yeah. And then agents always, they, they, they always get excited about books that they can relate to. This is the kind of mm. key word that is used over and over again. But <laughs> if nobody can relate to your experience. Uh, then it's really frustrating. I mean, I mean, you know, the problem is not necessarily the book. The problem is that you haven't been to this part of the world, or you don't know what makes a work like this actually kind of revolutionary. I mean, I'm not talking about my own work, but I just <laughs> okay, mean that right. you know, there's this gaping hole in the market, and there's an entire region of the world that would be very interested in reading works that are set here. So even, I mean, even from a from a purely commercial uh marketing standpoint this isn't this is a largely untapped market but most uh publishers in the u.s and in the uk are not necessarily distributing uh in that region or sort of focusing on that region so it's hard to make a case Mm. that this is actually uh it could be profitable (laughs) you know never mind whether Mm -hmm. or not it's sort of a good book it could actually make you money if you try right (laughs) yeah of course So the good news is you have a book coming out from Grey Wolf Press next year, which is basically a writer's dream. I mean, we love Grey Wolf. (laughs) Would you tell us about that book? Uh, Sure, yeah. Um, I think uh, I hadn't thought about the relationship between this book and um, the Gulf until very recently, but uh, the novel is called If an Egyptian Cannot Speak English, and it is uh, very much about um, who gets to tell what kinds of stories the novel is basically about these two Egyptian characters, one of whom is born and raised in Egypt and one of whom is uh, born and raised in the United States. Uh, they both consider themselves Egyptian. They're both ethnically Egyptian, but they have very different um, relationships to language, to power, to mobility. Um, and so they sort of have this uh, they have this romance in Egypt and one of them ends up writing about it. Uh, and so the question is really about sort of uh, who gets to tell what kinds of stories, who gets heard and who doesn't. Uh, so it's about English versus Arabic. Um, 
and uh, and sort of knowledge production in the West. Um, so yeah, it's sort of relevant to this golf thing. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I don't absolutely. know how why I can't answer this question. <laughs> like, it's like I knew it was coming, but I suddenly like cannot. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, so how long? I'm just always curious about like the life cycle of a novel. How long would you say you've been working on th- this current book, the one set in Egypt? Uh, this one's been about four years. Oh wow! Okay. Um, and are there certain points where it changed dramatically, or do you feel like it was always sort of on the same trajectory? Um, I think it was always on the same trajectory. Yeah, I think it, it's um, it's one of those novels that came together very quickly. I sort of immediately knew what it was about, and then, um, and it, it it's quite a short book, so it also uh, was born very quickly, and then had went through many, many, many cycles of revision. But the the concept was there from the beginning. That's nice. Yeah. Um. So one last question, then. What do you What are you working on now? What's next? Well, uh, my hope is I'm, I'm trying to work on an essay that is a little bit about uh, the Gulf, actually, and about um, my own feelings of disorientation in relation to it. Um, you know, I, I've been moving around really frenetically for the last few years, and it's gotten to a point where I'll sort of wake up in the middle of the night and not know what city I'm in and fall out <laughs> of bed because I think I'm in a different bed, in a different room, in a different country, uh, or I'll answer the phone in the wrong language, or I'll try to pay with a currency that (laughs) does not exist in this country. So I, you know, I get time zones confused. I've just, I've just become really, um, frazzled and exhausted. And I'm trying to think about, um, what happens to the mind when it sort of loses its sense of here-ness, uh, on a sort of subconscious level. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that, that the next, uh, project will be maybe a book of essays or maybe, um, just a long meditation on place. Mm, that sounds wonderful. Nora Naga, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great talking with you. Thank you, Emily. This was really lovely. I'm really glad we got to have a, a little follow-up chat. Me too. Listeners, you can read Noor's essay, Who Writes the Arabian Gulf, and other work from this portfolio at thecommononline.org.